0: and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Hello, and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I am not Daniel Williams. I'm Declan McGee. Daniel is out on vacation. Before Daniel took off, he had an interesting interview with Robin Farman-Farmian. Robin is a professional speaker, a career coach, an author, and an entrepreneur. She believes that technology can empower patients and make a positive impact in the health and medical field. Some of you may remember Robin from MGMA's 2018 annual conference in Boston, where she gave a keynote on the Healthcare Revolution Roadmap. In this interview, Robin and Daniel talk about the cutting edge of healthcare, technology, AI, and the future. Robin, thanks so much for joining the podcast today.
1: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Now, you have an incredible story. We had you at MGMA Annual Conference last year, and many of our uh, members and listeners got to hear that story. But for the ones who didn't, I'd love for you to share that. It kind of led into you becoming an expert in healthcare technology. So if you don't mind, if you could tell us a little bit about your career and basically start with your life um, as a patient that you talk about a lot and how that shaped your career path and your purpose.
1: Absolutely. So my life goal is to impact the minimum of 100 million patients worldwide. And so as an early-stage entrepreneur and angel investor, I typically focus on early-stage pharmaceuticals, medical device, and artificial intelligence software. But that's a pretty crazy number, of course, right? Like, how does an individual impact 100 million patients? Of course, it stems from my, my experiences as a chronic disease patient. At the age of 16, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease. By 19, they had taken out my entire large intestine. And by 26, I was on 80 milligrams a day of methadone. And this was all for a misdiagnosis. And finally, at the age of 26, I went back to my doctor and I said, I need to be off all of these medications. Like methadone is a horrible medication. I want to be off of it now and she said, okay, well, next step could be to surgically implant a morphine pump into your spine. I was like, are you kidding me? At the time, I was a shut-in, like I could not I could not function and I can't imagine anyone can function on something like 80 milligrams a day of methadone. Uh, so I fired my healthcare team, I started taking myself off the methadone and essentially went through withdrawal by myself for about a week and I rebuilt my team with, with physicians and um, other professionals that were actually at the same hospital systems I just changed them out and had everyone think about my, my chronic disease from, from you know step one. And very quickly, I ended up getting diagnosed correctly with Crohn's disease, put on Remicade, which is a biologic, and I went into remission overnight.
0: Hmm. Now, you are such a bubbly, energetic person. I, I just have to ask you, what, what did you do to kind of deal with all those problems when you keep getting bad news from this health team that you wound up firing. But what do you do to make it through that? It
1: was hard back then, I mean, because I was only in my 20s. Unfortunately, I have an incredibly strong support system. My mom, we lost her about 10 years ago to cancer, but uh, she was a physician. And my father is an MIT scientist turned patent attorney. And it was really having them in my corner, I think, that got me through it. And then once I got through it, uh, just living with a a chronic disease on a daily basis, it took it took me a while to figure it out. But now that I have, I realize it's uh, it's pretty as long as you're diligent, you can really exceed expectations and excel in your career and your personal life, even with a a debilitating chronic disease.
0: Mm -hmm. Did that experience shape your path where you got so involved with healthcare technology or how did that come about?
1: Well, exactly. As soon as I got on Remicade and I got off all of the medications, I suddenly felt better. And so I am kind of one of those overdriven type A personalities. And I immediately started working in genetic testing. And this was 2005, right? This was early, early in genomics. And uh, and I I did things like wrote the algorithms that led from the SNPs to the client reports. And then I switched over into EMRs. And then I decided to get into the hard stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> like pharmaceutical.
0: <Right>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it was the no-brainer for me. I was like, my my parents are in you know medicine and healthcare, and I had spent my entire you know teenage years and twenties in healthcare as a patient. I mean, it was really there was nowhere else that I could imagine going.
0: Mm-hmm. It was almost destiny. Right. Right. Now. Uh, one last question on that side of it what was the i know physically it was difficult but emotionally what was it like there and what did you do to get through it i mean did you take up some form of exercise were you able to exercise did you meditate i mean what did you do to kind of empower yourself because i know empowerment such a huge part of your message what did you do to empower yourself and drive yourself to keep going
1: so it's the same thing that i do now on a daily basis to ward off chronic pain. And it is essentially creating an ecosystem and having a, a solution-focused mindset. So one of the things I made sure is to reduce all negative people in my life, right? And I set up my environment, which is quiet and sunny and has clean air. Um, I mean, it's everything about living your life at the at the fullest. And, and that's kind of the emotional side of it. I do always, if I need to, I use companies like Talkspace, if I need to talk to a therapist, or, or back then, you know, this was way before the internet, I would have like a therapist that I could talk to if I needed it. Um, I had a good social support system in terms of friends, but it's that, I have tricks. It's that thing, you, you have to find it inside of yourself, and when you wake up in the morning and you're not feeling well and you're looking at a day of doctor's appointments, um, I have a set three hours in the morning. So the first hour, I I get my blood sugar up with a little bit of a breakfast, and I listen to some fun music or, or get uh, you know replied to some fun, some friends on email. In the second hour, I work out. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things that that um, people can do is I work out for an hour a day every single day, and I have for almost my entire life, except for about a three month period when I was on the methadone.
0: Mm-hmm. What's your uh, workout program? Does it vary, or do you have a set program that you follow?
1: So another thing about this mental side and the emotional side is I always make sure to exceed my own expectations. And so at home, I have my own gym. So I control the environment. I don't have to get out, you know, go and drive to a gym and and deal with what's up there. So I have my own StairMaster elliptical and ROM 4-minute machine, which engages all of your upper body muscles. And so I do those three for an hour. But then when I travel, because I'm a professional speaker, so I'm constantly staying in hotels, I make sure that the hotel A has a gym, and B, I choose to walk on treadmills on the days that I travel. Because I know there is a 100% chance that there will be a treadmill in a hotel gym, Mm -hmm. whereas they might not have an elliptical or a StairMaster. So that means I'm never disappointed. I never have an excuse saying, oh, well, they don't have my favorite machines, so I can't work out today. Like that doesn't exist in my world.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, these days, you are known as a uh, sort of a, a disruptor and a and a entrepreneur in the technology space. And technology has disrupted a number of industries. One of the ones it's disrupted the most and continues to disrupt is that world of medicine and healthcare. What are some of the biggest healthcare disruptors that you're seeing out there right now?
1: Well, it's really about the convergence of some of these different fast-moving technologies coming together, enabling each other, right? So I would think things like artificial intelligence, sensors, and cloud computing, as well as uh, internet access, those four combined are really driving some massive change inside of, of healthcare and medicine. The, of course, the communication for the telemedicine, but in order for things like artificial intelligence to actually be able to work is you need at least a billion data points. And in order to get that, you need things like being able to store them in the cloud, and you need to be able to get, uh, actually get the data, and a lot of the time that could mean through sensors. Right? So it's really about the convergence of a lot of these different technologies. But if some people try and and nail me down to one of the most disruptive, and I would probably have to say AI.
0: Mm -hmm. Why is that? What is it doing that you've seen so far in healthcare?
1: Oh, well, it can replace human beings in a lot of cases. And so one that received, one software program last year that received FDA clearance is specifically for diabetic retinopathy. And it replaces the extremely expensive a specialist who reads those reports typically. So you need to have a, a, a patient go into a healthcare professional to get the exam done, you know, a technician or a nurse. But then this software will analyze uh, and give you a binary answer of yes or no, the patient has diabetic retinopathy, or no, they don't come back in a year. And so because it's able to take a lot of tasks off of human beings, that is, in, that in and of itself is a, a huge disruptor.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there, how is the industry accepting these changes? Are they coming from mostly outside? You live in Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, and you're in an area where there's so much creativity and innovation going on. Is that where most of these new innovations are coming from?
1: Well, actually, technically, most of the disruptive um, innovations actually came out of DARPA and we are now able to utilize them in medicine. And so I'm seeing a lot of both startup companies, but the thing that has gotten a lot of healthcare professionals terrified, and especially when I give talks to CTOs and CIOs of hospital systems, they are terrified at this massive shift that we're seeing because the big guys are getting into it. Microsoft, Salesforce even said they were getting into EMRs or at least data interoperability, Apple, Uh, you know, Google, right? Amazon, these guys can move entire markets and in a matter of hours, right? Like, look how fast Apple was able to distribute their watches. They've already distributed 35 million watches. And now, of course, their latest version has an FDA cleared single lead EKG monitor. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's
1: just the first medical device that they are putting onto their Apple watch. Now, looking at companies like Amazon, CVS, right, Walmart, they are massively disrupting healthcare as well and, and this massive shift, right? So CVS is investing, they set up to 325 to $350 million to outfit at least 1,500 of their stores and they have over 9,500 or so uh, in the country uh, to be more kind of like primary care type clinics. And they will be focusing on the top five most expensive diseases like CAD, you know, coronary artery disease, uh, hypertension, and diabetes. Now, things like that terrify hospitals, right? Because hospitals need to be able to bring in money and revenue. And if we are shifting some of the most expensive diseases, both outside of the hospital into things like CVS or into the home, That is terrifying to a lot of people in healthcare because all of a sudden the revenue is shifting.
0: Mm -hmm. What can they do then? I mean, instead of just being fearful of it, how do they embrace it or have it integrate into what they're already doing?
1: So they need to join them. Watch what Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google are doing in healthcare and stay at least right there with them or one step ahead of them. Right, And so in terms of if you owned a hospital system or a big medical practice, first of all, telemedicine, it's a no-brainer. Secondly, uh, things like being able to do the virtual care with point-of-care diagnostic devices in the home. So if, uh, say for example, you could get the point-of-care diagnostic devices available right now in Best Buy, and what that is is FDA-cleared otoscopes, stethoscope, temperature monitor, and tongue depressor, which all have cameras on them, and the physician through video is able to direct the patient to either apply these on themselves or on their child, for example, so that you avoid that visit. Now, maybe the hospitals or the physicians, like if you're in a primary care or pediatrics practice, you actually distribute these types of devices to your patients. Maybe it costs you, and maybe it's a loaner program, maybe it is a um, monthly subscription model, but if you give them things like that, and by the way, the name of that company is Care, T-Y-T-O-C-A-R-E, and it's coming out of Israel. If you supply those to your patients, and then they have to call you potentially, right? Mm-hmm. In order to use them, you're going to be retaining them, as opposed to calling the doctors that work with Care, right? So you can maybe distribute the Apple iWatch, and again, on a subscription model, potentially. But you want to keep your patients coming back and checking in with you. CMS is reimbursing not only for remote patient monitoring now, and they have three new codes this year. Last year they only had one code. This year they have three new codes. But they're also paying for NEMT, non-emergency medical transport. So essentially Ubers and Lyfts. So really partnering with those kinds of companies as well to make sure your patients are coming into the hospital.
0: Mm -hmm. Who is is impressing right now? You mentioned that... uh Apple's iWatch iWatch is 35 million in sales. They've got the FDA approval. Who else is out there doing some things that are sort of outside the traditional healthcare field that are doing some things that are really impressive?
1: All right, so everyone has heard of Fitbit. What you might not be aware of is they have now been included in over 680 clinical trials, white papers, and studies. And that's just for their accelerometer. They are already in conversations with the FDA because they also want to go clinical grade. In addition to that, they bought a health coaching platform last year, and so they are doing what's called personalized digital interventions. Right. So the watch, the Fitbit watch, knows when you haven't moved, um, you know, enough. And they have both live coaches but AI coaches that will then tell you to get up and exercise or help you through things whenever you need it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you mentioned, I want to go back to it. You said that AI has the ability to take, I guess, if I'm repeating this correctly, the place of human beings in some instances. The healthcare field, all the studies show that they're suffering from huge shortages of people in the first place. So how can that be integrated in the right way where it doesn't cause people to lose their jobs but it helps fill positions that there just aren't enough people there to to fill right now
1: well that's exactly it and that's what most of these companies are trying to solve the problem for uh people who are in remote locations right so a lot of the time they're not necessarily going after people in cities we're trying to get telemedicine and virtual care, and CMS is on board with this. Uh, United Healthcare, I've spoken to them. Uh, Cigna, they they're on board with this as well. Is really treating patients who are, you know, an hour or five hours away from good medical care, and there are a lot of places in this country where that is actually true. It's not just the developing world. And so I know there are some drone trials as well going on in places like Virginia, Nevada right, um, where there are a lot of patients who are not necessarily near a city center. Mm -hmm. So like having this, having a program that can help diagnose diabetic retinopathy in a primary care clinic versus having to go to um, an ophthalmology office, that is huge because you don't have good eye doctors probably in the middle of nowhere in Virginia or in the mountains or something like that, but you do have primary care clinics. So being able to have a software program uh, screen these patients who would never otherwise have access to an eye doctor.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you've talked a lot about there's some fear and, and maybe even some resistance to some of these cutting edge technologies that are taking place. But when you're out there talking to healthcare leaders, what are they excited about? What are some of the new technologies that have come along that have them excited and they're ready to have them as part of their system and program?
1: So it totally depends on who I'm speaking with, because remember, it's a $3.5 trillion industry. So the people who are extremely excited are just excited about the pay- improving patient outcomes. I mean, they, they smile from ear to ear when I tell them about some of the, the cool innovations and in point of care diagnostics or how I'm able to, um, where, where I'm seeing you know clinical trials, vaccines, and as well as uh, just regular IV medications like my Remicade, which is a biologic, being shifted into the home and how much of a difference this is actually making on how well the medications are working and giving patients access to things like clinical trials when they never had access before because they're nowhere near the the geographic location where the clinical trial was happening. So they get so excited. And I see that a lot, especially um, internally at pharma companies as well. Like some of the people who work on the innovation side are really excited about some of these, these shifts going on. And the physicians too. So it depends on which physician. But a lot of them are are so on board that I see them, they have all the latest, and they've tried VR, and they have the Apple Watch, and they are data junkies like some of their patients. And that's really fun.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you had mentioned that you're constantly on the move, you're traveling, speaking to audiences around the country. What are some common questions that you hear? What do people want to know, that healthcare audience when you're speaking to them, what do they want to know about what's going on out there?
1: Oh, um, it depends again, the, but one of the things I've gotten recently, because I've been doing some keynotes on tissue engineering, um, people are very, very curious as to see when we are going to be able to 3D print organs. And that is actually in a less than 10 year horizon now it's mind blowing how fast things like tissue engineering are moving. And uh, that, that really excites a lot of people because we can do skin already. Like we can already do skin quite well. We're seeing other companies growing tumors so that we can start to increase or, or, or do personalized medicine. So when you have a patient and you're trying to decide between one of the many, many, many chemotherapies out there, for their particular type of cancer we now are are looking at growing the actual tumor outside the patient's body and testing medications on that so we have truly personalized medicine hmm. and that that's only 3 years away
0: wow i want to i yeah. want to go back to the 3d printing to the layman which i'm one of those tell us about that what are we talking about here with 3d printing you said of organs i'm yep. i'm i'm astonished and almost uh, speechless here. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So uh, it's also called tissue engineering. And so we're able to essentially grow in a lab skin already, right? Uh, we, uh, there's a company going into phase one, two trials right now. They just got FDA approval to go into phase one, two, and that is growing up bone. That is part of the jaw. Like that is, we can do that. Right, So then you don't have to worry about transplant problems. Um, But in terms of vascularized organs, so the heart, the lungs, kidneys, liver, these are much more difficult to do than bone and skin um, because, of course, they've got that vascular system. And so what we're seeing is companies like United Therapeutics, they're a world leader in tissue engineering, um, and what they're doing is they 3D print a scaffolding of a say heart, and they use and they do that by extracting something from the tobacco plant actually, and then once they have that scaffolding in place, which is just the the outside and the the of the actual heart, then they tissue engineer using endothelial as well as um, heart muscle cardiac cells, stem cells that they have extracted from the recipient patient's bone marrow, because we now are able to turn that pluripotent. So we know how to turn um, extracted adult stem cells into various types of different stem cells. And the, the muscle of the heart actually grows around that scaffolding. Hmm. That, that is, is yeah. they That company is expecting to go into clinical trials within the next few years in terms of animal studies. Mm-hmm. And then there's a company in Israel that just came out with a massive breakthrough a few months ago, and they were able to 3D print a... A heart the size of a cherry which is about the size of a rabbit's heart and it was able to uh, it's not beating perfectly but it was able to contract huh. and that and that came out of like a machine
0: that's unbelievable so when you're talking about this then because we hear about people on donor list and, and people pass away because they they can't get the organ that would work for them in time this would be able to take the place of that then is that where we're not going? only
1: that but we would be able to no longer require um um drugs right to suppress the immune system because if if you have an organ that has been built on your stem cells you're not going to you're you're you have no worry about rejecting it. Uh-huh that's a really big deal in the world of transplants. Not only that, but the transplant lists you know a couple hundred thousand some of them the, that is a fraction of the people in the world who would actually benefit from an organ pr- transplant. In fact, 30% of the United States, 30% of us die because of late-stage organ failure.
0: Hmm.
1: That's over 700,000 deaths in the United States a year. That could be either delayed or fixed through an organ transplant. Mm-hmm. So imagine a world, and this is, this, is, this is on the 20 year horizon, by the way, this isn't like five generations out. This is, our kids are gonna grow up like in a world where instead of getting heart surgery or a bypass, you just switch out the heart.
0: Unbelievable. So I, you're blowing my mind here. I'm just gonna be honest with you. So if you're able to do all of this and an and organs failing, put in a new one, What is what are we talking about with human longevity then? How long can a person live?
1: Because the human cell dies at a certain point, right? We we see very few people make it over 100 to 120, right? Um, But if we are replacing your organs with brand new factory-made organs that are 60 years younger than your body, Ah uh, yes, we will be extending life significantly I mean just going back to that thirty percent number, thirty percent of us die from late stage organ failure mm. right there we're gonna put you know if you just get new kidneys or new liver but once they get start start getting used up, right you may as well just slip them out if you can if if it's cheap enough to do so and um, and we have the access and the technology works
0: mm-hmm. what's something else out there that that normal people have nothing know nothing about um what 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 else is mind-blowing that uh is going on in the world of technology and research right now
1: so um the smartphone is going is going to disappear so we're all so concerned we're all looking down at our smartphones or our tablets and we're we're talking about kids in school and how do we regulate that and we're doing studies on the on on amount of time on the internet, and I'm sitting back here laughing because like you guys are all wasting your time. This right. is going to be gone in the next five years. It's not going to exist anymore.
0: Um, are we going to put a chip in our head? What are we? What are you talking yes. about?
1: exactly. Yes. So I do work, I'm advising a company uh, doing brain-computer interfaces, and absolutely. So first, it's going to go into our glasses, and it'll be not like Google Glass. It'll be very unobtrusive and then it will be sensors that are either implanted or subcutaneous or right there on the skin right Uh, so uh, i can tell you a mind-blowing thing that we're doing at mind maze so that's a company in europe and they're not available in the united states Though they do have fda approval it's just you know it takes a while to grow a billion dollar unicorn (laughs) and expand but we have uh, fda approval for for, uh, vr for stroke and brain injury rehabilitation but we also have sensors that can fit on the inside of any type of VR headset, so it's laying right there on your skin. And with these sensors, we are not only able to predict and reflect emotions in real time, which is huge for things like neurodegenerative disease, that's why they uh, you know, uh, created those, but it turns out they're also able to, uh, to read muscle intent, which means with those sensors, they are now communicating with locked-in patients. Hmm. Did I just blow your mind?
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because we can tell now with the with the locked in patients by putting these sensors on their face when they think about moving a muscle, even though that muscle doesn't move anymore, the intention is still um, an electrical signal that we can pick up.
0: Mm hmm. Do you know of aliens that are being hidden like in uh, Area 51 as well? What else do you know out there (laughs) (laughs) that the rest of us don't?
1: (laughs) I do. I have spent a lot of time talking. I have a good friend who who, uh, led up uh, DARPA's biological department. So, you know, we talk about things 20 years out, which is really fun. Um, He was talking uh, a recent conversation I had with him was about the microbiome and um, and being able to collect it on a daily basis so that we can alter our diets or environments or even get transplants when needed.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, let me switch gears a little bit. In the healthcare field, we talk a lot about telehealth, virtual care. Also, you and I were talking earlier about wearable technology like the iWatch. Um, But you also, in your talks, you've mentioned big data. So what role does it play in healthcare technology?
1: Oh that's what's responsible for for unlocking a huge number of innovations and secrets right because we don't understand the human body I mean we don't understand why medications work the way they do a lot of the time right we're in pharma I've worked in pharma long enough to know that it's it's a huge guessing game and we really just don't, don't understand it but being able to collect enough data will be able to train ai to train itself to unlock some of these secrets in the genome, in the microbiome, and especially in neuro, because the brain is still such a uh, mysterious object to us in medicine.
0: Hmm. Now, I have to make the leap here. So if we're able to live till we're 150 or 200 years old and AI is doing all the work for us, what are we gonna be doing all that time?
1: <laughs> well, it, it does, it depends on the kind of your philosophy around that. but. Right now, we're seeing AI take the place of mundane tasks, allowing people like physicians to focus on what's more important, like actually communicating and interacting with the patient and using their intuition on a lot of things. So first, we're just going to see all these mundane tasks that we don't want to do, going, um, taking off of it. But we cannot even imagine at this point just how fast technology is moving that our world isn't going to look the same in 50 years. In 50 years, we are going to not recognize anything. If you were just to try and, you know, just hop into the world 50 years from now. So there will be a lot more jobs. Technology throughout history has created more jobs than it has destroyed in each one of the revolutions, the technological revolutions. And so we will probably see that here as well. It's just we can't even imagine it think about the drone industry mm-hmm. but it, that didn't exist right whatever right. 10 years ago and now all of a sudden not only does the drone industry exist but a huge number of jobs around that but the drone detection industry exists now which not may not necessarily being a flying object right that's a whole different type of technology to, to detect or thwart drones mm-hmm. um, but it, it creates an entire ecosystem and huge number of jobs every one of these new technologies think about the word data scientist that wasn't a that wasn't taught in schools until the past what 3 4 years was that a major mm-hmm. so we are seeing just huge numbers of of jobs being born that we never even thought about before and so that's going to happen over the next 20 and 50 years as well We just can't even imagine the jobs that don't exist today, which will exist then.
0: Mm -hmm. When we get back to big data, what does that do for the healthcare industry as far as reaching and understanding the patient? I mean, because you talk a lot about uh, patient empowerment, how your own experiences involve patient empowerment. So when we get to that kind of meeting of both the healthcare side and the patient side, what can big data do to help both sides improve patient care?
1: Well, first of all, it can do things like the AI coaching, right? So we need to, again, going back to the fact that AI needs a billion data points just to begin. So it's oh, when you're talking about AI, you are always talking about big data. Now if we have enough data on the individual patients, we can essentially have a personal assistant slash life coach by the patient's side 24 seven. And that's huge because we all know in healthcare that a significant amount of patient outcomes have nothing to do with the actual healthcare they're receiving and everything to do with their behavior. And so with things like AI coaching, we're able to alter people's behavior in real time in their environments. And not only that, but we have the sensor technology. So we have clinical grade blood pressure monitoring watches now that just got cleared. Uh, Clinical grade pulse oximeter watches. And that just cleared the FDA as well. So things like that, being able to give that real time data in order for that real time AI coach to intervene at a given point. And that right there is huge in the world of patient empowerment because you've got someone who is holding your hand 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
0: Now, you've, you wrote a book a few years ago, and it, it talked a lot about patient empowerment. Um, expound on that a little bit. What was your main purpose in writing that book and reaching audiences to help educate them about it?
1: Sure. So strangely enough, my target audience is not patients with this book, although um, definitely I want, because, you know, 100% of us are patients at some point. So definitely. But I really targeted physicians and hospitals and healthcare professionals across the spectrum because right now, the thing is patients don't think about taking control of their health because up until recently, it's been a very paternalistic system and that's healthcare around the world. That's not, that's not unique to the United States. And so we've always been taught from being little kids that the doctor is, is the one in charge and just do what he says or she says and, and don't question anything and they'll take care of you. And we realize, you know, in the past 10 years, that can't be the case anymore. The family doctor can't spend an hour and you know being friends with the family and coming and visiting and all of that, like it did, you know, we saw back in the back in the olden days. And so having the the healthcare professional understand that the patient is the CEO or the one in control, can they can then educate their patients and saying, you know what? I, you are the one who's in control, so let's work on this like a team. Because it has to come from, essentially, the people they look up to.
0: Mm-hmm. Does,
1: that, does that make sense?
0: It does. It does. So let's turn the flip side of that, because many of our listeners uh, are employed at medical practices and health systems. They're either on the business side or they're seeing patients. What can technology do for them to empower them on the healthcare? equation that we're talking about
1: oh wow i mean there are so many th- ways that that the healthcare professional is is benefiting from a lot of these technologies and just thinking about the the ai component alone um and things like emrs and real-time remote patient monitoring and so we're seeing um i can't remember oh i think it's e works last year launched uh the ava bot and so it's essentially a chat bot that you just that works like amazon's alexa and you say hey ava uh pull up robin's lab results from yesterday and the chat bot will be able to extract that data from the emr without the healthcare professional even typing anything and so being able to have that in conjunction with real-time remote patient monitoring so uh blood pressure monitoring or pulse oximetry monitoring or just you know accelerometer monitoring and software that will alert the healthcare professional only if there is a problem. So that same type of chatbot, and it doesn't have to be eClinicalWorks, obviously, but that's just one that's on the market now, will alert the doctor or the nurse and say, hey, Robin hasn't moved in 12 hours and it's daytime and she had heart surgery last week. There's a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know. And so that alone, being able to provide your patients with real-time interventions to help them avoid things like urgent care or the emergency room, as well as we all know, if we can catch things right when they start, like things like in the world of cancer, if we can catch neutropenia before it starts, it's going to cost a hell of a lot less mm-hmm. than if we if we ca- if the patient gets uh, you know much more advanced and then requires hospitalization.
0: Right. So you work with so many cutting-edge technologies and you study them, but there's also that issue of patient privacy. So you've seen them kind of work through the system. What's involved then to bringing them to market and ensuring that patients are, you know, their, their information is, remains private?
1: So um, they just have to follow their very specific rules on uh, data, transfer, tra- data transfer and in fact, stricter rules than HIPAA compliance even. And so as long as you follow the standard security, prob- uh, security protocols and um, the HIPAA compliance, you're pretty safe. The, w- the way we're seeing data being uh, kind of stolen or the problems with data is actually getting in through the back end of the devices. So when the patient signs in and they don't have a secure password or a secure internet connection or the healthcare professional brings the computer home and it accidentally goes on a wireless connection that is is uh, is not secure, right? Like a coffee shop or an airport or, or anything like that. That's where we're seeing a problem with things like data. And then of course, criminals breaking into actual databases. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is that Privacy issue is kind of, it depends on on who you're talking to, right? So if you're talking to like myself or say a lot of the millennials or Generation Z, they're like, who cares? Here's my data, I'll put it up on Twitter, right? And so it's actually a non-issue for a lot of patients. And then there's the other school of thought where the other patients who are terrified that their Fitbit data is gonna be stolen and used against them for something, right? Mm -hmm. and so it depends on who you're talking to um i definitely am the school of thought where okay go ahead and take all my data because i do understand in technology the healthcare professionals they're all you know they have to worry about the blood pressure data not going out there but what people don't understand is that with the sensors the microphones the cameras and the ai and facial recognition we are able to essentially almost diagnose you, uh, especially within the world of mental disorders, uh, by using AI. So we've got things like smart billboards now. So if you walk up to, say, a billboard, the billboard will recognize who you are and then will show you an ad based on your personality, your mm-hmm. Google searches, what you do on Facebook, all of that. In it, so not only is it recognizing you, but it knows all of your habits, it knows everything that you like. But um, when you combine that with things like IBM Watson did a study, I want to say it was about five years ago, and they were able to predict with 100% accuracy patients who were end up having a psychotic breakdown. Mm-hmm. So you can walk up to these billboards and it can say, okay, well, this patient is um, in a manic episode from, of their bipolarness, right? Like this, and this is outside of healthcare. Amazon Alexa, though it is HIPAA compliant, the other ones are not yet, as far as I know. And so they are collecting more data on us, on things like tone of voice, facial expression, uh, the way you string words together over a period of time. And those are all points in a um, diagnosis on some of the neuro problems, right? Or some of the mental disorders. Mm -hmm. And so what are you talking about with privacy? If the consumer world knows my political affiliation just by my Facebook posts, even though I never say it, um, and can understand what my mental problems are. They know when my cycle is, right? Because they know my history of when I order things from Instacart or Amazon. Privacy is kind of gone in terms of medicine outside of healthcare already. I know that's a very strange thing to think about, and we should be very secure inside of healthcare but there are ways that we are now able to diagnose patients outside of healthcare that people are not even realizing or thinking about mm-hmm. privacy is gone already
0: yeah i mean i understand that and i accept it on the fact that it it is true but it's concerning for people who have health issues and if they can be diagnosed that way then what Happens to their healthcare costs, to their insurance premiums, things like that. I mean, that's where I think it would be a concern for. Um, there would be some certain bias in that, and then and then even uh, not hiring someone. If you're if you're you know potential employer, you go in for an interview, and they can do this AI read on you and see your pre-existing conditions or see your health issues that you have and just go, well, this person may have a psychotic break as you were talking about. So I'm not going to hire them. I'm going to go hire this safer choice. So are there issues like that? I mean, I would have to think that you've got to work through some problems along that way.
1: So the thing is things like, um, like United healthcare, I think they have what 50 million patients or something like that. CMS, um, how, how many patients have, have gone through CMS? I mean, if you think about it, there's really only about seven or eight giants who probably have the vast majority of our healthcare data already. And in, in the world of payers, so CMS, the VA, United Cigna, you know, Anthem, Aetna, you know, these companies already have our full health history. The thing that is keeping them from, um, from kicking us out of their insurance is federal law. And it's the same thing in the world of the workplace, federal law, disabilities law, discrimination law. It's all going to come down to the rules and regulations of the specific country and county and uh, has nothing to do with with the privacy. Because you know what? Those people, they already have all that data. They have it. It's it's can they how can they use it? And that just comes down to politics.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Wow. That is amazing stuff. Well, I know you've covered most of this, but I did wanna ask you one more question just just to be on the safe side here. Are there any other things that you didn't mention that you're just incredibly excited when you think about the future of healthcare and and really where it has that intersection of technology and medicine?
1: Oh, everything is just so exciting. I jump out of bed every day saying, okay, what conversations can I have? What keynotes can I write today? I mean, it's, it's amazing. I think the thing that has me most excited is this massive shift to the patient's environment. The technology that's really empowering that to happen because um, I talk about this on stage. First 16 years I got Remicade, I got it done in the hospital. And high-end hospital, top 10 hospitals, like these are the best hospitals in the world. But the experience is, is terrible, right? You've got no windows, you've got constant noise of the IV poles beeping, which healthcare professionals can tune out. But if you're a patient and you're sitting there for five hours, listening to to constant beeping from that, it's actually, it would take me about eight days to recover. I would come home. I would be shaking. I wouldn't feel well. And I always thought, of course it was the biologic, but four years ago, I pulled Remicade into my home and my recovery time went from a pretty hardcore eight days to a very mild three days, purely by changing the patient experience. Right? So not only are we going to start to see improved outcomes from not forcing patients to go into environments that are A, covered with infectious disease. right? Anytime you walk into a hospital, you're walking into a world of germs. Um, and secondly, the, just the noise and the environment in which this medication you're forced to sit in, that was actually causing pain. And so I think we're gonna see a lot more improved outcomes by pulling healthcare into the patient's home environment. And the other thing about that is that with companies, like I use Heal where I have a primary care doctor actually come into my apartment and um, they give me my flu shot that way or a checkup. They can see my environment so they can do things like, oh my gosh, you you have black mold and that's why you have allergies or this immune response. It's not because of other things. So sometimes it's also the patient's environment. So when we can start really treating them in those places, we can see is the environment making them sicker? Is it actually helping improve their outcomes?
0: Okay. Well, Robin, I wanna thank you for joining us and blowing our minds here on technology and medicine. Um, it's been a delight to hear and, and just kind of, as I've said, mind blowing. Thank you for that.
1: Sure, it was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks again to Robin Farman-Farmian for joining the podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the intersection of technology and healthcare, you can join us at MGMA's annual conference October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. Registration is now open. For more information and to register, visit mgma.com slash big easy 19. Thanks again for being an MGMA Insider. I'm Daniel Williams. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for. So you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions visit mgma.com/analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations again visit mgma.com/analytics today